The ancient temples of Egypt. Simple monuments to the gods? Or complex puzzles that we are just beginning to understand? Are there still secrets here? Hidden in the sands for all these centuries waiting to be revealed? Could the temples express a scientific knowledge beyond the imagination of the Victorian scientists who first unearthed the stones? Do the temples express an ancient unity of religion, art, science and philosophy? A unity of man and cosmos? Were the temples actually early masterpieces of mass communication? Interactive tools relaying an ancient wisdom? Recent discoveries are beginning to suggest that the temples were not just the location of the teaching. They were the teaching. An astonishing example is the Temple of Luxor. After recent revelations, some now call it the Temple of Man. Could this temple, built over a period of five centuries, have been planned entirely in advance? Could Luxor's very blueprint reveal a sophisticated understanding of the human body? Is it possible that the ancient Egyptians had a knowledge of human reproduction at the microscopic level? Our original research suggests that even Luxor's main entrance could have a startling significance. Is this a visual metaphor for the human brain? Temple of Man, yet another remarkable discovery in unexplained Egypt. Welcome back to episode 41 of the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. We're going to continue uh, here on this episode 41 with part 4 in this series, and this is for educational purposes only. Part 4 in the series of John Anthony West, Magical Egypt. On episode 39, Actually, on episode 38, I do an introduction, so I highly recommend going back to episode 38 if you're enjoying this, and listen to episode 1 in the series, and I give my commentary and little input. I don't feel like doing commentary for each episode, I don't think it's worth it. Um, there's enough content, there's enough richness in this content for you. I, I can't add to it, if I speak too much, I'll only be taking away from it. So I'll let John Anthony West, the man himself, do the speaking. There's a time to speak and a time to be silent. And when it's John Anthony West, it's time to listen. So anyway, I hope you're enjoying this series. Again, this is uh, Alpha Male Buddhist, episode 41. And this is part four of John Anthony West, Magical Egypt, part four. Hope you're enjoying it. Let's get into it. 
temple is a puzzle, an expression of artistic genius unequaled in all of time, yet originating from the very earliest recorded history, unorthodox masterpieces of mass communication still transmitting their timeless message. They're still performing not only as repositories of this ancient and alien culture, but also as an ever-present blueprint to elevated states of genius and creativity. The temples are not just repositories, but timeless teachers. An ancient reminder of previous high watermarks of human achievement. Some of the most tantalizing aspects of Egypt remain unexplained. In fact, it could safely be said that more remains unexplained about ancient Egypt than not. The temple was the highest expression of ancient Egyptian culture. The perfect integration of art, science, psychology, and theology. A transcendent map of a reality in which all of these disciplines were fused as one. The temples represent a technology employed by the ancients to encrypt and transmit their most important cultural ideas. They preserved the accumulated understanding of a vastly ancient culture. Each temple was a chapter in the teaching of the overall Egyptian worldview. Studying them was a lifelong pursuit of the dedicated initiate. Taken together, the temples archive and transmit the timeless secrets of creation, secrets of human evolution, secrets of human destiny. the keys to a cosmology that we are only beginning to understand. The temples spoke in symbol, volume, harmony, proportion, and indeed in time. Some traditions hold that the temple was more than a place of worship. They were an essential component in the rituals and magical life of the ancients. For those like these initiates, in possession of the proper keys, the temples were a wellspring of secret and sacred ancient knowledge. Possession of those keys allowed a kind of interactivity with the temples and with the symbols, talismans, and mythos encrypted there. But for all visitors, the various transmissions from the temples evoked an unusually elevated and receptive state of mind. The Egyptian temple was more than a place of worship. The temples were the teaching. Not surprisingly, images of the netters are a near constant presence in the temples. The netters, often somewhat misleadingly referred to as gods, 
symbolize the various natural laws and forces at work in the universe, in living man and in consciousness. Some of the best known today, but not necessarily most important, include Osiris, Isis, and Set. All of the netters flowed from Tung, who was the embodiment of unity. The netters were principles of nature and of human nature. Each was personified in several anthropomorphic roles. The depictions of the netters and of their human interactions are a vital aspect of the language of the temple. Their postures, gestures and clothing were all part of the vocabulary. Each was a meaningful detail in the complex symbolic language. Each temple was consecrated to a different netter, so each temple is a chapter in the study of the overall Egyptian worldview. The Temple of Dendera is a repository of cycles. It features the netter Hathor, depicted in her role as Cosmic Mother. At Karnak, the netter Amun is the animator of form, the living expression of organic life and growth. The Osirian is said to be the tomb of Osiris. The symbolism here concerns the universal principles of death and regeneration. It was the temple of Luxor, consecrated to the creation of man and emphasizing several netters that provided the key to reading the complex and exhaustive teachings embedded in the temples. understanding of how the temples functioned was altered forever by the extraordinary research of R.A. Schwaller de Lubitz. Schwaller was a highly educated scientist and scholar of medieval hermeticism, the ancient mystical tradition that has sprung from the contact of Greek and Egyptian cultures. He spent a great deal of time studying the Gothic cathedrals where he was impressed by these cathedrals' use of hermetic principles and sacred geometries to communicate their spiritual meaning. In Egypt, he thought he saw something similar at work and undertook a landmark study of the Temple of Luxor, spending 15 years on site from 1936 to 1951. He carefully recorded and analyzed every minute detail of the temple's design, measurements, and imagery, and shocked the archaeological world with an altogether unexpected finding. This strange temple, which Schwaller would come to call the Temple of Man, was laid out according to the proportions of an idealized male frame. Schwaller de Lubitsch's discoveries at Luxor, the 
uncovered a lost key which decoded the language of this ancient temple. A key that allowed the temple at long last to speak again. Egyptologist and author John Anthony West. One of the most dramatic and pivotal discoveries Fowler made at Luxor was an example of correspondence as a hidden frequency in the language of the temple. In this case, an understanding of this correspondence was the key that unlocked the temple. The various rooms and walls and components of the temple each communicated an exhaustive teaching about the aspect of living man that it corresponded to. Through the esoteric language of correspondence, the temple demonstrated not only the mechanics and biometric data of our physical bodies, but goes on to demonstrate an astonishing understanding of our subtle or spiritual bodies, as described in Eastern, Taoist and Hindu thought. The human being embodied in the temple is Pharaoh, who is symbolic of human perfection. Demonstrating the highest level of man's development, Pharaoh is humankind's divine form. The temple clearly expressed a belief that man and the cosmos were one, and that each was fully represented and intertwined within the other. The Egyptians had a sense of spiritual metabolism that bound man and the universe. In man, the assimilation of cosmic and physical nourishment, as depicted in this image of the adult pharaoh nursing at the breast of Isis, leads to the liberation of man's intellectual and spiritual powers. The temple taught the mystical secrets of what Shwala called the anthropocosm, the human cosmos. The temple graphically communicated the interrelationship between microcosm and macrocosm. Man is not only the culminant creation of the universe, but in fact, man is the universe. The same archetypal rules or netters that govern man govern the universe and each can be understood through a study of the other. The Egyptians saw the universe as an entirely conscious creation, an aspect of divine consciousness. The netters were not gods as we think of them. They were personifications of universal principles and processes, balancing and resolving inherently conflicting aspects of the world. They were real powers that acted when one invited them to by understanding and using the cosmic laws. The entrance to the temples is flanked with a colonnade of sphinxes. In the dynastic era, when the temple was operational, 
This colonnade of sphinxes stretched all the way to the temple at Karnak. The ritual processions would travel the two miles between the two linked temples, passing thousands of these sphinxes. The large stone walls called pylons that form the entranceway of most classic Egyptian temples are one of their most recognizable features. The symbolic nature of these gateways is clear. Their divided structure is said to represent a division of unity into duality, with both halves linked. Like a horizon divided by two large hills, this symbol evokes the image of two interworking hemispheres, bringing on the dawn of intelligence, symbolized as the illumination of the rising sun. A comparison of the structure and symbolism of the pylon and the shape and function of the human brain reveals some startling similarities. The two hemispheres of the brain are well reflected in the pylon, while the central location of the temple entrance corresponds physically and symbolically to the central pineal gland. The significance of the entranceway is underlined by the symbolic proportion of the door itself. It is designed using geometric proportions of great significance to the Egyptians and to the artists and scientists of later ages. The door is designed using the special proportions known as the pi and phi ratios. Leonardo da Vinci would later call this relationship the divine proportion. The overall doorway is strikingly similar in shape to the Greek symbol for pi. The door is the perfect expression of the pi and phi proportions, and in fact, may be the literal origin of the Greek letter pi. Immortalizing and incorporating these proportions in the temple was not done lightly. Their use strongly indicates that this was seen as a link to divinity, the doorway into and out of life. This is reinforced by the universal presence of a spiritual symbol, the winged disc above each temple door. The winged disc and the classic Egyptian door are everywhere the same. Positioned to reveal a great deal when one understands the correspondences. The winged disc, symbolic of an eternal consciousness, entering and leaving each successive incarnation to learn the lessons held in each room or each life. Like a true symbolic transmission, the entire message of the temple is apprehendable in a single glance to those who understand its keys. The symbolism of the pylons emphasize the central role of the pineal gland or third eye as the gateway into and out of incarnation. temple's architectural and symbolic message has already begun to speak to us of the mysteries of consciousness. Just inside the entrance to the temple, we find the Hall of Marches. The perimeter of this hall is composed of 18 giant stone figures, each representing Ramses. 
Each has his left leg identically extended, as if taking a first step toward a destination. And while the rest of the temple is laid out along two straight axes from head to leg, this hall is not. Instead, it is skewed at an angle, the exact angle used in the extended left legs. Seen from above, it perfectly outlines a side projection of the royal figures marching. It is as though the temple itself is taking the same step forward. The entire emphasis of the hall is the forward leg, man in motion, living man. Parts of the temple correspond to the main articulations of the human body, and the symbolism of the friezes and the artwork inscriptions and so on, we might call it a lesson in esoteric physiology, because the, the various parts of the body represent, in their own way, the various phases of genesis of setting the whole universe into motion. So what does the lower leg do? I mean, the first step. So this is the part of the temple that is that is um, related to or consecrated to setting the whole thing into motion. The marchers in the first hall of the temple each stand with left leg extended. This seemingly random feature has a symbolic significance which still influences temple and lodge rituals today. Observe the movements of any Freemason during a public ceremony. You'll notice without fail when they move forward, they step off with the left foot. The origins of this practice are unexplained. The hall symbolizes the movement forward into the world of humanity in action, yet this was the final hall built. The adult goes forth into the world when physical growth is complete. At the site of the knees, just above the Hall of Marchers, the designers of the temple used another meticulously pre-planned technique for emphasizing one aspect of the hieroglyphic story told in the stones. This panel, for instance, depicts the unification of Upper and Lower Egypt, with the Nile running between them. The stones have been cut so that the horizontal joint between the two layers of stone fall directly at the knee of both the pharaohs. Here, as in other parts of the temple, the graphical placement of joints between stones, which appears random, is in fact deliberate and meaningful. Schwaller came to realize that the joints could be just as significant as the images themselves. They serve as orientation aids in navigating the complex symbolic realm of the temple. The joints cross the section of the human form, corresponding to where they are located in the overall temple. This is one way that the masonry joints fine-tune the communication of the concepts being taught in that particular chamber. In some cases, they also serve to allow a story to continue across time. In one of the earliest chambers constructed, corresponding to the pituitary gland in the head, 
which controls growth, there is a figure of a royal child standing in front of the Persea tree, the tree of life. A horizontal joint cuts through above the eyes, another passes through the child's knee, and a third vertical joint isolates the child's left knee. This young pharaoh's figure is located near the pituitary region of the temple, like the upper horizontal joint in the image, and sure enough, hundreds of years later, the figure was repeated here at the knee of the temple, except that now the pharaoh in front of the tree has grown into mature adult. In this second Persea tree relief, a now fully grown king kneels in front of the tree, here at the knee point of the temple. In these two images, one from the earliest stages of the temple and one here at the next to last, we see the boy king grown to knowledgeable adult and we see the teaching of the temple extending through time. Moving up the temple from the knee, we pass between twin statues of Amenhotep III and his wife. Here, in the hall corresponding to the femur, the leg bone above the knee, all of the reliefs are elaborate portrayals of celebratory feasts. These feasts follow the processionals from Karnak, the Temple of Life, in which a huge array of food offerings would be carried into the temple. Modern science knows the femur is responsible for the manufacture of most of the blood's red corpuscles which feed the body. It's in the thigh, particularly in the marrow of the femur, most of the blood corpuscles are manufactured. Sort of the, the essential nourishment of the, of the whole, whole frame is produced in the femur. We can see a relationship between the choice of this spot in the design of the temple and the depictions of offerings to the netters. These offerings can be seen as providing the spiritual sustenance to keep the entire enterprise going, just as our femur provides the physical nourishment required by the rest of our body. And the same process is being shown here. In other words, all of this processional stuff is leading up to the sustenance, spiritual sustenance of of the entire enterprise, of the human frame. Because it's here that the marrow is being made, so it's, it's not just festival, but it's festival with a, with a much more profound esoteric significance that is at the same time absolutely in keeping with physiology. In this frieze, the pharaoh has two right hands. This symbolic storytelling device is seen often at Luxor and throughout Egypt. For the Egyptians, the right hand gave and the left hand received. And so we know that in this dramatic depiction of esoteric metabolism, the pharaoh is offering the food, not receiving it. The section of the temple corresponding to the belly, and particularly the umbilical cord or navel, became a central test of Schwaller's interpretation of the temple. His biometric evidence strongly suggested that this hall must be related to the umbilical and to birth. Many Egyptologists were skeptical of Schwaller's revolutionary work, 
But one scientist, Alexandre Daril, maintained an open mind. In discussing this section of the temple, they agreed that if the temple were indeed modeled on an idealized male frame, the architrave stones atop the columns in the center of this hall were positioned precisely where one would expect the umbilical to be located. Schwaller felt that there must therefore be some hieroglyphic reference to birth on these heavily inscribed upper blocks. If there were no such references, then this would clearly raise grave doubts about his entire reading of the stones. So they went to Baril, who was friendly with them, and asked them to translate that one particular, that one particular architrave, because they felt that it was kind of central. If it didn't say something there about birth, the whole theory was suspect. It was quite clear it was that architrave and not another one that corresponded. Everything is exact to the to the navel. And sure enough, when Baril translated it, something to the effect of here the king is born, here life begins, the king is raised to maturity, leaves the temple crowned in glory, words to that effect, something of that sort. Baril's translation of the ancient stone, with results exactly as predicted, was a dramatic turning point in Schwaller's work, opening the eyes of many other researchers. The temple area corresponding to the chest cavity contains rooms clearly associated with the lungs and the heart. At the site of the lungs is a dramatic hypostyle hall, a hall in which the high ceiling is supported by huge columns. The Egyptians associated the lungs with the lunar principle. At the base of the columns are carved the phases of the moon. While still visible in older photos, these carvings incredibly have now been buried under the gravel that has been laid to accommodate visitors to the temple. At the base of the columns that make up this hypostyle hall, we see another interesting symbolic association. The phases of the moon are carved into the bases of the columns. The association of lungs and the moon is not hard to understand. The rhythmic breathing in and out of the lungs is similar to the cyclical rise and fall of the tide. The tides themselves are caused by the fluctuating gravitational pull of the moon. The lungs are associated with the moon and the heart with the sun. The moon works through gravity or pulling like the lungs do. The sun radiates outward as the heart pumps. Not far from the hypostyle hall is a special chamber at the heart of the temple. It is no coincidence that the heart of the temple was taken over and overbuilt in Roman times. It was a peculiar practice of Roman Christians to take over the part of the temple that was most sacred to the Egyptians. Having torn the original heart out of the temple, the Romans dedicated this domed Christian sanctuary to Emperor Trajan Augustus in the year AD 127. This chamber corresponds to the vocal cords in Schwaller's plan, and it calls out for close attention. Here, and only here, the five sacred names of the king are symbolically spoken. And this room is also where a story reinforcing the spiritual origins of the pharaohs is spoken in symbolic imagery.
story itself centers on Mutamoya, the mother of Amenhotep III, King Tut. It is a story that will echo through the ages. And on this wall here, a very remarkable scene. It's called the, the scene of the theogamy, or marriage to the gods. In it, Amon and the queen, Mutemoya, the mother of Amenhotep III, are seated on a symbol for the sky, supported by two goddesses, Selkit, with a scorpion emblem, Neith, with a crossed arrows, whose own feet also don't rest upon the ground, denoting the holy spiritual nature of the scene. On the right are Amon's words, on the left, Mutemoya's, the queen's responses. And what is being depicted here is Amon telling the queen that she will shortly give birth to a divine king, to a divine being. This scene is explained by Egyptologists as a political device by Amenhotep to justify his accession to the throne. Actually, what it is, is the Annunciation. Uh, what comes later in Christianity, the Annunciation by the God of the coming birth of a divine being. And so we see written into Egyptian symbolism on a wall of a temple built in 1300 BC, a central aspect of the later Christian doctrine. The story being related in this frieze is one of the greatest ever told. This chamber is home to the first telling of a story that was to define the course of history for thousands of years. In the projection of an infant's form over the covered temple, we see that this room also corresponds to the umbilical center of the newborn. Adjacent to this chamber of the sacred word is Luxor's central sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, the seed from which the rest of the temple grew. All Egyptian temples had a similar sanctuary, which was the very first room to be built. In the case of Luxor, it was actually rebuilt by Alexander the Great in 300 BC, but it remains on the site of the original sanctuary. It retains its original design and all of its supreme significance. This first chamber is called the Seed of the Temple. Each Egyptian temple was symbolically built upon a special stone selected from an earlier temple, the Seed Stone. It was placed in the ground like a seed replanted in the earth. At Luxor, that stone lies directly beneath the paving stones in this room. The use of a seed stone from a pre-existing or deconstructed temple was a curious practice of the Egyptians. There's really no structural purpose for doing this, and the explanation they provide seems more to do with magical or symbolic reasoning. The use of a special or ceremonial cornerstone is another practice that's still in use today. The carvings on this stone and in this chamber are of special significance. They predict the organic growth of the temple just as the genetic information in a living seed predicts the growth of the organism. They were visible for years and remain so in photos, but have in recent years been paved over. As one might expect, procreation is a predominant theme in this chamber, and it should come as no surprise to find the presence of me, the netter of fertility. He is depicted here in a startling and highly graphic bas-relief, 
and this ancient image includes a seminal revelation about the advanced scientific knowledge of the Egyptians that cannot be explained by academics even today. Uh, this remarkable relief on the outer wall of the sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, depicts Amon in his role of Min, the god or principle of procreation, of insemination. And as we see in graphic form, uh, the, the king has semen being ejected from his, from his erect phallus. And over here we see a jug, an offering, a little offering bowl with water being poured from it. But the entire scene itself, or the entire little depiction, is actually a graphic of an actual physical sperm cell. There's no doubt that the Egyptians knew what a sperm cell looks like, because in another depiction, in one of the tombs, Ramses VI, um, again, sperm appears as little serpents with heads. So the Egyptians aren't simply imagining what they know what a sperm cell looks like. They actually do know, and how they know is in fact one of those mysteries that should be addressed and that normally isn't addressed by academic Egyptologists. The Egyptians were able to work with crystals um, which we see in rare but occasional figurines but never has a magnifying glass been found and the level of magnification is considerable in order to know what a in order to be able to physically see a sperm cell it's thought by the academics that uh, they may have used a cow's eye the lens of a cow's eye for certain orders of magnification but again it's hard to imagine that that could be used to view the physical sperm cell so this remains actually rather of rather more of a mystery than uh, people like to acknowledge Temple of Luxor is in every respect the living image of man. Like man, it began from a seed containing the overall plan for what it would ultimately become. It grew in time in accordance with the geometry of life, and we can see that the stages of the temple's growth correspond very closely with the four stages of human growth that are governed by the pituitary gland. Was this a functional necessity for the temple to perform its task? On Schwaller's plan, this hall corresponds to the eyes and optical center, where the nerves cross, and the right brain receives what the left eye sees, and the left brain receives what the right eye sees. The hall is dominated by 12 columns, this is known as the Hall of Twelve Columns, which represents symbolically the 12 hours of day and 12 hours of night. It's interesting to note that the optic nerve consists of 12 bundles of nerves. This is the center of vision as it relates to consciousness. 
Above the optical center of the temple, in what would correspond to the higher glands of the brain, we find a set of three interlocking sanctuaries. Solid stone walls between the three chambers hold one of the most amazing surprises to be found in Luxor. The expansive imagery carved into each side of separating walls can only be understood by combining the images carved on the other side of the same wall. The images interlock, enhance, and complete each other. It is as if a single image or idea was etched partially on one side of a thick sheet of glass and partially on the opposite side. The wall itself connects and synthesizes them. It is as if the walls depict a sacred thought being transmitted through the brain. This triple sanctuary is home to the pineal gland or third eye. The enigmatic cobra rising from the third eye of the pharaoh is so prevalent that it is almost synonymous with Egyptian art. What did it mean? The central aspect of the pharaohs was that they were humankind perfected and elevated to a divine plane. The cobra over the pineal gland area served as the perfect insignia for their status, but also connects to a concept found in countless cultures. It echoes and amplifies the similar concepts at the heart of Hindu and Asian sacred teachings. The transformation into a higher spiritual manifestation is symbolized by the Hindus as a kundalini snake. It represents life energy redirected and refined for the creation of a higher spiritual presence. Similarly, Throughout tantric, alchemical, and modern magical disciplines, it is an indicator of the universal pursuit of higher consciousness. A curious note concerning the Uraeus serpent, the, the cobra that appears over the forehead of, um, of the pharaoh's headpiece and such. Uh, while obviously uh, a symbol of the activation of the Ajna chakra, the third eye chakra, in uh, the psychic system of, of mankind. It also points to a secret form of worship open only to initiates. So while, while the, the populace, while the masses worshiped the bull of Taurus, and this was during the astrological age of Taurus, uh, well, they publicly worshiped the bull, the priests, the kings, secretly worshipped the snake of Scorpio, which is on the opposite pole, directly opposite in the zodiac from Taurus. This ancient and secret science, called Kundalini in some cultures, is universally represented by and symbolically associated with the snake. This arcane and magical science seems to have occupied a position of great importance in the minds of the Egyptian elite. In every culture, the symbolism of the snake is deeply rooted in magic, in forbidden knowledge, and in the pursuit of higher states of consciousness. In this relief from the tomb of Seti III, we see not only the snake symbolism, but we see the rising sun, itself a symbol of the dawn of a higher consciousness, cresting two intertwined serpents. 
What makes this relief even more interesting is when we overlay the same template provided by Luxor Temple, the symbolism of this relief becomes clear. We see so many correlations, it seems incontrovertible that these two images are linked in some way. This ancient and secret science, symbolized by the snake and associated with rising light and higher consciousness, seems to have been of central importance to the magical operations employed to gain mastery over the transition into the afterlife. In nearly every ancient culture which placed a value on the pursuit of higher states of consciousness, the symbolic use of the snake to represent various channels and forces of higher, subtle or spiritual energy is a universal tradition. The location of the rising cobra at the exact site of the third eye reinforces the special emphasis placed on this same site by the pylons and connects this symbolism to the rich heritage and pan-cultural associations it carries. Mysteries of the Temple of Man remain beyond our full grasp despite many tantalizing insights. New research continues to produce new revelations. Our realization that the very gateway pylon serves as a metaphor for human consciousness is just the most recent development. When will we understand how the ancient Egyptians could have drawn microscopic cells or was the proximity of a graphic depiction of male sexuality and a lifelike sperm cell just a wild coincidence? What is the meaning of a depiction of an immaculate conception in the year 1300 BC? The sophisticated levels of artistic, scientific and spiritual knowledge that were required for the design and construction of the Temple of Luxor defy easy explanation and so were long ignored by traditional Egyptology. Recent revelations show that the temple was a complex, sacred teaching designed to be studied over time. It was a magical instrument intended to demonstrate and even facilitate the devoted student's connection to a conscious universe. For those who could read the ancient language of the temple, it provided a map of that universe as reflected in humanity. Today, our resurgent understanding of the temple's symbolic riddles allows us to see that the temple's architecture remains vital and alive. By continuing our research, we maintain a connection to a civilization that came before. We keep open a passageway into the life of ancient Egypt. Welcome to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. 
I like to cover topics from ancient history, great leaders and generals from the past, and I also like to talk about self-realization, truth, critical thinking, and strategic spirituality. Outside the box, nonconformist. I'm here to shatter the myths of the mainstream media and the beta sheeple narrative. Welcome to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. My email address is alphamalebuddhist at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening and namaste.